This is Guns and Butter. That's the biggest danger, the fact that we don't seem to understand that the war that these people are waging is not against bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein, you know, this traveling circus, as I always say, known as the mullahs of Iran. We are their enemy, and we better understand that, and we better understand it soon, because they will destroy us, and they will annihilate us unless we actually stand up, wake up, and realize it. And that's why you have the mass media entertainment in the United States and everywhere else in the world so that we don't do too much thinking by getting in the way of important people with our independent thinking. And this is the end game. And people better realize that the war, again, is not against Bin Laden. We are their enemy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Daniel Estulin. Today's show, The Bilderberg Group, Rulers of the World. Daniel Estulin is an investigator, author, and public speaker. His book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, has just been published in the United States. Already an international bestseller, having sold one and a half million copies worldwide, the book was on the top ten list for 36 straight weeks in Spain. 18 weeks is number one. The True Story of the Bilderberg Group describes an annual gathering where the European and American political elite and the wealthiest CEOs of the world all come together to discuss the economic and political future of humanity. Highly secretive, the press has never been allowed to attend, nor have statements ever been released on the group's conclusions or discussions, which have great ramifications for all the citizens of the world. The book also includes sections on the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission. A Canadian citizen, Daniel Estulin grew up in the Soviet Union, emigrated to Canada when he was 15, and currently lives in Spain. Daniel Estulin, welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You know, I do want to let you know before we start that I found out about Pacifica, and specifically about your work, from friends of mine who live in Spain who have actually been listening for, for a long time to your broadcast. I, re- I really don't know how they get hold of it, but, you know, that's how I found out of Pacifica and Bonnie Faulkner. Well, Daniel, that's very interesting. That's great. I know that uh, the Internet has opened up uh, a world to everyone on radio, on the Internet. Well, I hope a lot of people all around the world listen down to our interview as well. Well, there you go. Let's hope so. Uh, your new book, just published in this country, I guess it's not a new book in Spain and in other countries, but it's just been published in the United States, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. What's the Bilderberg Group, and what's a Bilderberger? Well, first of all, let me tell you what Bilderberg is not. It's uh, it's not a Jewish Masonic conspiracy, uh, although, you know, you go to the Internet and you see all these sites with very fragile logic trying to defend the, you know, the theory that it's a Jewish Masonic conspiracy. It is not. It's also not an Illuminati conspiracy, whatever the heck that is. And uh, uh, furthermore, and most important, I think it's not a monolith, meaning that no group of people, and I don't care how powerful they are, sit around a table in a dark room holding hands, staring into a crystal ball, plotting the world's domination. Bilderberg is what I call the aristocracy of purpose. Bilderberg is your NATO alliance where the European and uh, North American members are uh, working on best ways to control 
not necessarily the peoples of the planet, but also the natural resources. Again, Bilderberg is about two things. It's about money and it's about natural resources. But money ultimately loses its value if we have no energy, for example. So that's basically what Bilderberg is all about. Very powerful individuals meeting in private during three or four days every year where they discuss the best ways to manage all the affairs of the planet. And how would you describe a Bilderberger? How many people, well, when was this so-called organization formed, and how many people does it encompass, and who are they? Bilderberg was founded in 1954. Uh, the first meeting was held in a little Dutch town of Oosterbeek, next to, uh, to Amsterdam. Uh, the hotel itself uh, was called the Bilderberg Hotel, and the uh, cover of the book, actually the photograph on the cover of the book, is the actual photograph of Bilderberg Hotel circa 1954. Uh, it was owned by the uh, Royal Dutch family, and that's why the Bilderberg Group, that's where they get their name from. They take it from the, from the first meeting, which was held at this Bilderberg Hotel. There are about 120, 130 people who come annually. Forty percent of the invitees are from the United States. The rest are from Europe. Uh, Bilderberg is every president of European nations, the United States and Canada. American presidents don't go as a rule because, again, their time, every minute of their day is accounted for. But they're very well represented by other leaders, such as Richard Pearl, Douglas Fife, uh, Richard Holbrook, uh, it could be Donald Rumsfeld, etc., etc. Anyway, they are very well represented, and needless to say, the information gets to them. Uh, other members who belong to the Bilderberger Group are the uh, central bankers. Every central banker of all the European nations belongs to the club, uh, along with the president of International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, Federal Reserve. You have all the European commissioners are members of the group as well. With them at the table sit all the representatives of the European royalty and uh, as well top 100 CEOs of the leading corporations such as Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Halliburton, etc., etc. And finally, they're joined by the leading representatives of the uh, corporate media such as the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Le Monde, Group of Research from Spain, BBC, uh, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, Etc., etc., which is again one of the reasons we may not have ever heard of these people because the uh, Bilderbergers and the power elite feel that their business of doing private things uh, amongst themselves should not be revealed to us, the great unwashed. Now, do people actually have membership in the Bilderberg group? Is it that formal? Well, in, uh, in membership in a way that you know, they're card carrying members, no, they're not, they're no such things. Uh, but once you are invited, you're always a member, meaning that even the people who uh, might not be attending this year's conference get the, uh, uh, the minutes of the meeting. It's understood that that information must remain secret, private. It must never be revealed to anybody outside the group. Again, you don't need to threaten people. You have to understand that powerful people don't ever threaten anyone. It's just understood that if you're invited to participate or you're once a member, that information is only beneficial to you and others like you. So the Bilderberg Group is made up of the most powerful people in the Western world. I guess in your book it says North America and Europe predominantly. Bilderberg is your uh, NATO alliance. Uh, uh, you have other organizations such as the CFR Council of Foreign Relations, which is your American uh, organization interlocked with Bilderbergers, and you have the Trilateral Commission, which is Americas, Europe, and Asia. That's trilateral, and that's you know that's a junior varsity member, uh, closely interlocked. 
with the uh, Council of Foreign Relations. But Bilderberg is the, uh, the dominant form amongst these three simply because of its exclusivity. Yes. Now, I noticed in your book the true story of the Bilderberg Group that you've basically divided the book into three parts, the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Trilateral Commission. But let's focus uh, right now on the Bilderberg Group itself. Now, according to your book, they have an annual meeting of consisting of three or four days once a year, generally in the spring. Could you describe a typical day at uh, the Bilderberg meeting? Right. Uh, meetings will always begin on a Thursday. They end on a Sunday, uh, usually somewhere um, closer to the end of May, beginning of June. Uh, the invitations a long time ago used to be decided and sent out uh, right at the end of the previous meeting. Uh, however, um, as of about seven, eight years ago, when they realized that all of that information was coming out thanks to our contacts within the group, they started cutting down on the privileges and on the need-to-know basis. Very few people within the group were actually getting that information ahead of time. So what they do now, because they're extremely paranoid, because you know, they've been burnt quite a few times over the last few years by us, is that the information, although the dates are set about a year in advance, the actual place where the meeting is held is only announced about a week or two weeks in advance. Uh, they begin on a Thursday afternoon. Most of them come in on a Wednesday. One of the f first people to come is usually David Rockefeller and his personal lackey. Uh, you know, the, again, the initial uh, meeting takes place on a Thursday afternoon. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour group meeting where everybody participates. On a Friday, you have a full-day meeting. They get up at 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the first meeting is held at 8, then there's a 10.30 break until 11. They go from 11 till 1 where they break for lunch. Then they have short nap, I guess. And then in the afternoon, again, they go till about 8, 8.30. Uh, Saturday, there's a morning session, and uh, Saturday afternoon, they go for a boat ride, a helicopter ride, a bus ride, or they just simply play golf. It's important to understand that when these people meet, they do work very, very, very hard. They're not there just to play golf, and that's what they would like us to believe, that they're there to play golf and exchange war stories. In fact, they're not. They work very, very hard at the things that they actually talk about. There are six panel discussions. Each panel has about 20 participants. Uh, three people lead the discussion. Um, anybody who participates or who is present must participate. There are no watchers. Uh, or onlookers, um, the, you, people can speak for one minute, for two minutes, or for five minutes. The one-minute speaker gets to go first. They raise one finger, uh, or two fingers, or five fingers. And then there's a two-hour discussion. Again, you have six forums, and uh, these six discussions take place simultaneously. And then they meet Saturday afternoon in an informal setting where all these things Again, it's a consensus kind of thing. Nobody threatens anybody. It's not, you know, it's, it's very important to understand for all these conspiracy nuts out there that it's not like, you know, this all-seeing Illuminati pyramid eye staring at you, making you do things. It's not like that at all. And if you go on, uh, uh, what you said about the, uh, you know, the book structure, you know, the first section is Bilderberg, then you have the CFR, then you have the Trilateral Commission, but even that, Bonnie, there's, you know, there's, there's a reason why I broke this into three separate sections, although they're very interlocked amongst themselves. Uh, because, for example, you know, at the end of January, you have your uh, Davos Economic Forum. Then uh, about March or so, you have your 
uh, Trilateral Commission regional meeting. Uh, April, you have your CFR thing. May, June, you have the Bilderbergers. September, October, you have the International Monetary uh, World Bank meeting. But nobody's leading these things. There's no, like, all-seeing eye, God, you know, character who's there telling everybody what to do. It's just this one thing effortlessly flows into another thing. But before you know it, decisions taken at once suddenly become, you know, the policy debate issues of the European Central Bank or the European Parliament, which are then passed on to national governments in Europe, which are then passed on to local and regional governments. And before you know it, you know, they're talking about, for example, the United Nations Army, something which was first discussed in the early 1990s and which just again came up last year in Canada. Anyway, do you see how it works? It's it's not a conspiracy in any way. It's just a group of people very in a very organized form working together towards a very common goal. And how uh how would you describe the common goal? Now, is there an agreement among these people? I mean, for instance, what you've described in terms of the IMF, the World Bank, the Trilateral Commission, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, etc., meeting at certain times each year. I mean, there is a structure here that you say that information, the consensus, the opinions, the ideas flow from one one group and one meeting, and there's overlap, etc. So, so there's a structure, and there must be a goal. What, in a broad sense, would you say the goal is? Okay, I'll tell you what the goal is, and also explain to you the structure. Uh, the goal is not one world uh, order, which, you know, we've heard this phrase so many times. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, this one world order phrase, there's been several one world orders throughout history, going all the way back to the Roman times. It's more of a concept of one world government, where you have one government, one constitution, one country, one region, you know, one currency. And you could see it right now in Europe, you know, you used to have currencies, countries, constitutions, flags nations borders now you have one nation called europe one flag called european flag you know blue with little stars one currency called the euro one constitution which takes precedence over every other national constitution in times of crisis which you know how easily can be orchestrated in in when the need arises so again the idea is to create not one world order but rather one world government and people like kenneth clark in 1999, he was a member of, you know, British Bilderberg member. In 1999, in Sintra, in, in Portugal, he admitted it publicly that, yes, you know, the idea is to merge these, fuse these economic blocks into one economic block, because just, you know, in, for bureaucratic purposes, it just makes it much easier to keep track and to control when you have one currency instead of when you have multiple currencies. Well, I can certainly see the consolidation of Europe, and of course we're now witnessing, and it's coming out more into the public, the consolidation perhaps of North America. But when you say one world government, uh, that seems a bit over the top. What purpose would that serve? Well, um, again, what... uh Today's called the uh, Bilderberg Group or the Bilderberg Club. Historically, I can demonstrate 550 years ago, it was called the Venetian Black Nobility. I spent two and a half years investigating in the National Library of Florence. And again, the roots are there. The plan has always been the same when you're talking about what's their objectives. Uh, 550 years ago, uh, when we had that first birth of what is known now as the nation-state under uh, the reign of Louis XI in France and then Henry VII in, uh, 
in England, for the first time in history, mankind uh, uh, was no longer working for the government, our children working for the government, dying their children working for the government, but rather the government started working for us, and for the first time in history, with the creation of nation-states, we uh, had constitution, national law, social welfare, and we began winning square kilometers of space against nature. So the idea uh, and the effort of the Venetian nobility 505, 50 years ago and the Bilderbergers today has always been to destroy the idea of the nation-state and to create this, you know, uh, you could talk about, again, going back to the Middle Ages, where you have the uh, uh, the oligarchy and the, and the people working for them. So that's how I would describe it, because, again, when you're talking about uh, one-world government, it does sound like, you know, a conspiracy, although it really not is a conspiracy if we see what is going on around the world. You, know, you have European Union, you have now the African Union, United States and Canada merging into one. The Asian Union is becoming a reality as well. So you have, you know, several economic blocks as a penultimate step to joining, fusing all of these together into one. Well, would you then describe it as a class war, uh, the owners against the workers, that type of thing? Well, um, I think it has always been this. Uh, you know, if you're talking about the owners and the workers, one of the things that... Uh, uh, people like Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, and, and, and Bill Clinton, I've been talking about for so long now, is destroying the United States Constitution. I mean, Clinton called it a document written by extremists, and Brzezinski, in his book, The Tetatronic Age, talked about this class warfare or class future class uh, between the elites and the uh, and the serfs. Uh, so again, that's not a new thing. And again, why would these people want to destroy the American Constitution? Because it's the only document in the world, actually, that limits the power of the government. So yes, but again, this isn't something new. This is not a new phenomenon. It goes back to the Middle Ages and to the efforts of the nation nobility to destroy the idea of the nation states. And again, nation states are defined by borders and by independence, something that we in Europe no longer have. I'm speaking with investigator and author Daniel Estelin. Today's show, The Bilderberg Group, Rulers of the World. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Daniel Estelin, you have been investigating the Bilderberg Group for how long? Now, how did you get into this, and how do you go about uh, getting information on these meetings? I've been doing this more uh, on and off since 1992. I got into it um, when a friend of my grandfather's, my grand, I'm, I'm Russian, I was born in the Soviet Union, my grandfather was a colonel in the KGB counterintelligence, and a friend of his who was a double agent, he was in trouble, was actually trying to get to my grandfather through me, trying to buy time and save himself because he was in some deep trouble because he was found out. I was way over my head. I had no idea what this man was talking about. He talked to me about this, you know, powerful group of people called the Builder something or other. Anyway, I just thought it was all a bunch of nonsense. And uh, as a 19-year-old, a 23-year-old kid, I, yeah, I, needless to say, just wrote him off as a nutcase. Until I started looking a little bit initially into this thing, and my initial impulse to look into these Bilderbergers was I thought, you know, if I get enough, you know, neat stories to tell, you know, I could pick up girls in bars. It was very primary instinct. And then once I got into it, once I started scratching the surface, I realized 
that there was a lot more truth to it than I've initially imagined. And beginning in 1995, 1996, that's when I became involved more or less full-time, although Bilderberg is not the only thing that I do. I do so many parallel investigations, but Bilderberg is, again, they've won me the, the name and the fame international recognition, you could say, you know. And uh, so, again, I've been doing it on and off since 1992, but I've been uh, dedicated to investigating these people more or less on a full-time basis since 1995. Now, how do you go about investigating the Bilderberg Group, and how do you get your information about what's going on? Now, these meetings are highly secret. Uh, could you describe the security measures taken and where these meetings take place? Oh, the security measures, if you're talking about security measures for for President of the United States visit, they pale in comparison to what these people go through. The American delegation is protected by the CIA and by the Army Special Division. The British delegation is protected by the MI6. Then you have Mossad protecting two or three Israeli delegates who are there. The rest of the delegates, smaller nations such as Spain, uh, uh, Canada, Greece, etc. You know, they get national security forces, national division of national army, depending on the nation where the meeting is is being held. Uh, the plans of the hotel uh, of the hotel where the meeting takes place are classified top secret. The access to all the roads around the hotel is closed off. Anybody who comes anywhere near has to show their ID and prove that they belong. Otherwise, they're you know turned around and sent back. For me, it's a, it's a, it's a real odyssey to get there. Uh, in uh, 2005, uh, flying from Madrid to, to Munich for the Rotterdam conference, my flight was diverted to Milan. I was whisked off the plane, uh, interrogated for 10 hours before I was let go. Uh, in uh, 2003 in France, uh, I almost didn't make it across the border in, in Stressa. They took my passport away. I didn't think they were going to give it back to me. I was followed and in Germany uh, a couple of years ago in a small hotel where I was staying. It was only at 12 rooms. Six of them were occupied by the Secret Service, three by the German Secret Service, and three by the CIA. So, again, the measures are extreme. I think it's somewhat exaggerated because, again, these people know that they know all about me. They know what I do, uh, and they know that I don't pose any danger, at least physical danger, to these people. Although we do have several members of the Bilderberg Group who are, you know, annual, and I have to be very careful how I say this, because I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but their lives uh, are in danger if, if they are found out. And several people who belong to the Bilderberg Elite who have been attending these conferences for over a decade uh, regularly pass out the information, because I think they also realize that, you know, what initially they had imagined Bilderberg to be is, is, is a lot more sinister. I don't mean to sound conspiratorial. So, are you getting your information about what goes on in the meetings from the actual attendees? Or yes, exactly it. That's it. I see. And then what about, tell me about the staff, the staff of the hotels. And also in your book, you mentioned that none of the attendees can have even their personal assistants sit in on the meetings. It's uh, exactly. Uh, the only people who can physically attend the meetings themselves are the Bilderberg members, the, the attendees, the assistants, such as David Rockefeller's personal lackey. He has to sit in a room next door. He can have lunch with him the day before the conference begins on a Wednesday, but as of Thursday, he, can, he basically takes him for a walk, uh, but he cannot be present when the meetings take place. Uh, he doesn't go on a boat ride. That's only for the Bilderberger attendees. Uh, I usually get to the place uh, a week before, 
Uh, it's a five-star hotel, about 40 kilometers from the main cities, such as Munich or Milan or, in this case, Ottawa. And uh, I talked to everybody who works there, to all the bellboys, the, you know, the hotel staff, and I explained to them what will take place. I asked them to please not take my word for it, but to please listen to what these people do and they talk about. And if they feel that what they hear can be useful, to please get in touch with me. They, a lot of them just write it right off. Others are simply afraid. But we do get a lot of very valuable information from people because one of the advantages of five-star luxury hotels is that all the staff must speak at least three or four languages. So as all of the meetings take place in English, and uh, with French being second language, there's no problem ever of getting very important information. Again, all that stuff is contrasted against other sources who do not know each other. The several Bilderberger attendees who are my sources, they do not know each other, or they do, but they don't know that they do not realize that they're my sources. So we have a lot of independent ways of confirming the information. And again, my batting average over the last 12 years has been about 900 points, which is fairly good. And uh, I do have a lot of other collaboration from people from the Secret Service community from around the world, not only the uh, the KGB, but it, because it's still called the KGB, although in the West they call it something else. You know, the MI6 people, the CIA people. Uh, because, again, not only within Bilderberg, but within the Secret Service community, they're all of wonderful people who understand the grave danger we are in, and they're doing what they can on the inside to try to get this information out. And once they know that they can trust you, the information finds its way into my hands. And needless to say, I'm very grateful to all of these people for their help. So, Danny, uh, tell us what some of the information is that you have gleaned from some of your sources. What are the discussions taking place? What's being talked about? What have you found out lately? Well, um, you know, uh, one of the things lately is one of the things earlier is, again, going back to 1996, when they first discussed uh, the breakup of Canada and the war in Kosovo. Uh, in 1996, we were able to stop them because that information came out, and Canadian press picked it up, and there was no way to stop all the stuff that was coming out about the Bilderberger plans to dismantle Canada and, and merge it with the United States into one nation. Um, they came back 11 years later, and what we have right now is the makings of the North American Union. Again, you know, to bring the point home, last week, coming into Canada from Europe, I was stopped at the Toronto airport by an American private security contractor working for DINCORP, who basically was deciding whether I, as a Canadian citizen, can enter my country on my Canadian passport or not, depending on the answers I gave him. You know, if that doesn't bring it home, I don't know what will. So again, that's one of the things that has been on the agenda over the last few years. The uh, Iraq war, again, that's something we predicted a year before it happened in 2002. I can tell you right now that the Iran war is off the table, although so many people are talking in the mainstream press about the immediacy of the Iran war. I can tell you that the the Russians and the French, who belong to Bilderberg, and then the Chinese, who are not members of Bilderberg, but who are members of the Trilateral Commission, you know, they've taken their gloves off, and they've drawn the proverbial line in the sand around Iran. There's just too much money that these countries have invested in Iran, and they will not let the United States, because, again, the United States is not the United States, but your men behind the curtain who rule and who run the United States, uh, they will not let these people to go, go into Iran if there is, if they will, you know, we're going to have a major war. And again, I, you know, you can smell blood in the water. 
And you know, Bonnie, what happens when there's blood in the water, it usually leads to a very good fight. So that's another important issue on the agenda. Last year in Canada, in, in Canada in June 2006, I reported it in my Bilderberg report. Uh, they were very concerned about the collapse, the imminent collapse of the U.S. housing market, which, of course, took place in uh, about March of 2007. And one of the Bilderbergers was saying, what will happen when people with a $500,000 mortgage find out that their home is only worth 100000 bucks?" And basically, this is exactly what is going on right now. So these are some of the, uh, let's say, some of the issues that these people have been talking about over the last uh, year or two. Now, do you have a sense of who or what makes final decisions? For instance, now that's interesting that you say, and I notice you mentioned that in your book, that the talk at the Bilderberg meeting is, of course, that there is not going to be an attack on Iran. Well, Americans want the war, but the European Bilderberg are saying you're going to do this alone and you're going to pay for it. So, uh, again, uh, the only other time we had such conflict uh, was in 2002 when they met in, in Virginia when the Europeans were saying, we don't want anything to do with this war, and the Americans were insisting on the war. They finally came to a consensus. The war was put off until February, March 2003 because European members were terrified of the consequences of this uproar in Europe. I mean, just in Spain alone, 15 million people came out and said no to war. You know what could happen if you have hundreds of millions of people across of Europe, across Europe coming out. Any spark could lead to a revolution, and I don't care how powerful these people are. You know, if you have 100 million people against you, there's nothing you can do to stop them. And again, the same thing is going on on the Iran issue. And again, the, the positions have been taken. The Europeans are saying, no way, the Americans won the war. And I'm going to go on the limb and say on your program that there is not going to be a war according to the latest Bilderberg 2007 meeting, which took place in Turkey. Well, that makes sense. However, I thought that there was more support for such an attack in Europe than there was for this uh, invasion of Iraq. Now, what about France? Hasn't the new leader Sarkozy, haven't they been saber-rattling against Iran? Well, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I do in my conferences uh, to help people understand who really runs the show, whether it's Bush, Sarkozy, or, or some other characters whose names and faces we just can't see, I talk about the, uh, this wonderful book called The Wizard of Oz. Now, in The Wizard of Oz, until we find the man behind the curtain, we don't really know how the kingdom is run. Well, this is more or less the same thing. If you want to understand how the Bilderbergers do their stuff, you have to understand and find the man behind the curtain. And Bush, Sarkozy, and Blair, and Chirac of this world, they're just your puppets, but the puppet masters... These are the proverbial men behind the curtain. And the idea of Sarkozy supporting Bush, um, it's a non-issue because, I, you know, I, researching my latest book, which has just come out in Spain, I was in Sudan and Darfur, which I think is the epicenter of the entire world struggle. And America's principal enemy in Darfur is France. Uh, Russia's is uh, China. You know, the Israelis are firing on the Americans. Every major nation in the world, you know, the Russians, the Americans, the French, the English, the Chinese, the, they're all there, and they're all fighting for the same thing, for oil. And again, you see the wholesale takeover of ex-French colonies by the United States and turning them into English, British, American colonies. That's a good example of, of what I'm saying, that, you know, Sarkozy is only uh, an American ally. 
that's for the gallery. In real world, in the man behind the curtain world, they're enemies. Yes, that's interesting, and uh, that's interesting about Darfur. I've done some uh, shows on that, and you're absolutely right. They're after the oil, and they want to get in there. Um, you know, I think um, a lot of people might not agree, but again, Bilderberg is about money, it's about energy. And when you have no energy to speak of, money ultimately becomes worthless. And I know it's quite a hot subject right now. People are talking about peak oil, and others are saying that you know, we have plenty of oil. It's just a scam to control the energy reserves in the countries. You know, I think differently. And again, one of the things that uh, Kissinger said four years ago in, in in France, and then repeated the same thing in in, uh, in Stressa in Italy in 2004, he said, you know, we have about 40 years of oil reserves left. And then someone else said, yeah, right, but we only have 20. If you keep in mind that the uh, the Chinese and the Indians are growing 10% a year, and uh, again, uh, if we have 20 years of oil reserves and we haven't found one oil reserve of uh, 500 million barrels, which is only about six days' supply for the world. Uh, it takes about seven years to get from the moment we find oil to the moment we actually get it into our vehicles. We're looking at about a decade left of oil. And again, um, it's about oil or energy, and it's about money. But money loses its value and becomes worthless if you don't have the energy to go along. So that's I think, is the background to all the wars, terrorism, all the money laundering, drugs, and everything else. Again, it's about money, and it's about energy. I'm speaking with investigator and author Daniel Estulin. Today's show, The Bilderberg Group, Rulers of the World. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you mentioned that as a Canadian citizen, when you landed at the airport in Toronto, you were stopped and interrogated by an employee of Dine Corporation, Dine Corps? Well, these were uh, American contractors working for the Canadian government, but contracted through Dine Corporation, or Dine Corporation, as you say it. Uh, and again, so these are the people deciding whether I can enter my country uh, as a Canadian citizen or not. You know, and we should ask ourselves why the only journalist in the mainstream press in the United States to actually speak of the North American Union is a guy by the name of Lou Dobbs on CNN. You know, I mean, there's nobody else doing that. What we're seeing right now is a plan which was actually put together about 25 years ago, but which was openly discussed in Toronto in 1996 at their Bilderberger meeting in King City. You mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, some of the attendees at uh, a few of these Bilderberg meetings who have given you information about some of the content of the meetings, that these individuals felt that the world was in grave danger, and that's why they were feeding you information. At least that was one of their reasons. What impressions did you get from these people as to what they felt were the biggest dangers that the world is now facing? I think the biggest danger, according to how they understand the world, is the fact that people don't seem to realize that, uh, you know, we don't live in a democracy that, uh, thanks to our television set and what, the, you know, the mass media, what they have done to us, they've created this illusion of democracy where, in fact, they manipulate us through television set, through the news media, you know, through printed press. And when you take into consideration that every position of power, be it in the banking sector, in the, uh, uh, in the industrial sector, in the government sector, in politics or whatnot, all of them are occupied by people who belong 
rather or to the Bilderbergers or to the Trilateral Commission or to the CFR, whose loyalties obviously do not lie with democracy and freedom, but whose loyalties lie with the peoples with their you know, planned goals, the Bilderberger goals for world domination. I think that's the gravest danger because, again, there are two kinds of prisons. There's one prison where you can actually, you're actually inside and you can touch the bars, you know, you're inside. But a far more worse prison, with the prison where you actually can't see the bars, it's an illusion of freedom. But in fact, that is only an illusion because everything we do, we think, we walk, we talk, how we speak, how we dress, how we smell, that is all controlled and manipulated by very intelligent people from behind the curtain. And I think that's the biggest danger, the fact that we don't seem to understand that the war that these people are waging is not against bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein, you know, this traveling circus, as I would say, known as the mullahs of Iran. We are their enemy, and we better understand that, and we better understand it soon, because they will destroy us, and they will annihilate us unless we actually stand up, wake up, and realize it. And that's why you have the mass media entertainment in the United States and everywhere else in the world, so that we don't do too much thinking by getting in the way of important people with our independent thinking. Now, you mentioned the media. Now, earlier on in our conversation, you did say that very high-level broadcasters, media people, attend these meetings. So talk a little bit about the media. Well, in the United States... uh, 262 journalists belong to the CFR. Uh, All the leading Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters belong to the Bilderbergers, and I don't know how many of them belong to the Trilateral Commission. It doesn't really matter because, you know, a a lot of them, it's a cross-section. You know, the more important ones belong, such as Donald Graham, for example, or his mother, Catherine Graham, of the Washington Post. They belong to the Trilaterals, to Bilderberg, to CFR, and God knows to how many other secret private organizations who knows what they do in these things. But uh, let me just give you an example. In 2002, when they met in, uh, in Virginia, uh, they were discussing the, the war in Iraq. They reached a consensus where the Americans and Europeans agreed that they're not going to start the war immediately. They're going to postpone it until February, March 2003. And European Bilderbergers, through their media and through their politicians, will try to pave the public opinion and, and prepare the public opinion for the war. They just needed more time. Now, that 2002 meeting was attended by people like uh, Thomas Friedman, uh, Hoagland, um, William Sapphire. I mean, you're talking about the leading reporters for the New York Times the Washington Post. Now, if I knew about what these people were talking about and I was on the outside, obviously, you know, the Sapphires of this world also knew what these people were talking about because they were on the inside. And if that information, which should have been, you know, the cover story of every newspaper in the country, if not the world, in fact, didn't make it not even to the last page of, you know, of the local rag. Uh, uh, so if that's the case, who do these people work for? They don't obviously represent the United States. They don't work for the people. They don't work for their media outlet, who supposedly tells their readers the truth. They represent the Bilderbergers and their interests. You know what I mean? And this is just an example of just three of the so many of these journalists who belong to this group. We In Spain, we have exactly the same problem. The leading Bilderberger outlet in Spain is called Grupo Prisa, who supplies all the textbooks to most South American countries. You know what I mean? So now you know what these children will be thinking about 20 years from now. 
Your book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, is full of many, many pages of uh, attendees at the Bilderberg Group. Obviously, these photos were taken of people there. You were just talking about the media. I saw Tom Brokaw's picture there. That's right. Uh, So it's not just uh, columnists who show up on the op-ed pages. It's actual broadcasters. Peter Jennings is a member. You know, it's like anybody who's anybody in the United States media must play along. If you don't play along, you don't get anywhere. And that's how, you know, the, the conspiracy of silence and censorship works. It's about control. Right. And do you think that the deindustrialization, say, of the United States, of course, there were many factors that went into that. Do you believe that that was a sought-after goal? Deindustrialization of the United States? Absolutely. You know what? Ten years ago, I came across in one of the CFR reports, the uh, Council of Foreign Relations reports, uh, they were talking about demand destruction. I didn't understand the, the phrase until I came across the same phrase about five years later in the Trilateral Commission report, and then in the Club of Rome report, and then in the Bilderberger report. So I asked a friend of mine who works for the World Bank if he could explain what this demand destruction is all about. And he said to me, you know, if you want to destroy the demand, how would you go about doing it? I said, well, I don't know. How would you do it? He said, by destroying the economy. And when you destroy the economy, people lose their wealth. That's what 1921, you know, stock market collapse was about. David Rockefellers didn't lose their money. It was a transfer of wealth from poor people, from us, to the wealthy individuals, such as Rockefeller, the Morgans, the Rothschilds, you know, etc. So this is, again, if you want to destroy the uh, demand, you destroy the economy. And we're witnessing it right now, not only in the United States, but also in Canada, also in Spain, in France. In Italy, the textile industry was destroyed by the Bilderbergers in Italy when they allowed cheap Chinese trinkets and garments literally unchallenged to go into the Italian market. So people have been in business for generations, if not for centuries, lost absolutely everything. That's not a coincidence. The people who orchestrated that, you know, that destruction were people such as Pascal Lamy, who is, again, the European Trade Commissioner, member of the Bilderberger elite, you know, your consummate insider who has been attending all of these meetings over the last decade or so. Again, you destroy the demand, you destroy the economy, you take the money out of people's hands. When people are poor, they feel subjugated, they feel threatened, they will do whatever they must do to conserve and to keep their jobs. And again, people who are poor don't travel, they don't buy things, they don't use energy, which the Rockefellers of this world feel is theirs and not ours. So this sounds like an anti-prosperity program to get rid of the middle class. Well, that's exactly, you just said it, you know, the concept is to get rid of the middle class. And this is exactly what Big New Brzezinski talks about in the Tetatronic Age. He says exactly the same thing. In the near future, we'll have two classes, the servants and the owners. Again, goes back to over 500 years ago, the idea of the pre-nation states when you had the oligarchs, everyone else working the fields, dying their children working the fields, so on and so forth. And now today we're seeing, again, this is the end game. And people better realize that the war, again, is not against Bin Laden. We are their enemy. I'm speaking with investigator and author Daniel Estulin. Today's show, The Bilderberg Group. Rulers of the World. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
Could you talk a little bit about how NGOs or non-governmental uh, organizations fit into the picture in addition to foundation funding like the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie uh, Endowment, etc.? Uh, the NGOs play a very important role in the entire scheme. Because they're NGOs and because they supposedly don't work for the government but represent the poor people, it's a very effective scheme uh, if you want to steal something from somebody. You know, I saw this firsthand in Sudan, in Darfur, where the uh, uh, European governments were working hand-in-hand with the multinational corporations such as BP, Shell, uh, Halliburton is there as well, uh, Texaco is there as well. Secret Service agencies are all of them also in Sudan and Darfur. And also all the NGOs are there as well. Again, the point of Sudan is oil. And it's no coincidence that all of these people are there trying to expropriate this oil from the poor Africans who actually live there. Another example, I could talk to you about uh, uh, Greenpeace. Now, uh, the idea is, uh, again, what's behind Greenpeace's attempt to discredit anyone who wants to use nuclear energy. That, again, goes back to the uh, Bilderberger plans to control the world. If you're a poor third world nation and you have nuclear energy at your disposal, it means that you don't need the handouts from the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. Now, uh, if I'm uh, International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, I need to control poor nations. So in exchange for my money, which gives them money to buy energy, um, I have the lands as uh, as a trade-off. Now, uh, uh, I'll give you an example of, of what Greenpeace does. Again, if you think of Greenpeace, the name itself is almost as well known as Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola. You know how many billions of dollars Coca-Cola spent on promoting its logo and its trademark. So how is it possible that an organization that is supposedly an NGO, such as Greenpeace, is almost as well known as some of the leading corporations, until you understand that there is another agenda behind their uh, public posturing of trying to save the world. I'll give you an example of what nuclear energy does for you and something that the Greenpeace has been uh, uh, campaigning so much against. Um, If you take any third world nation uh, who needs uh, the handouts from the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, now they need that money in order to buy the energy reserve so they can give food and and, and heat to their people. In return, as a trade-off, these organizations, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, get to keep the country's lands. Now, if you are a third world country such as Gabon, for example, and you have nuclear energy, then you suddenly realize you don't need International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, which means you can strike out on your own. This is what also the war was about between Argentina and Great Britain in something known as the Falklands War, the Malvinas War. See, Argentina was selling nuclear energy, cheap nuclear energy, to Mexico. Now, you can't have that if you're the man behind the curtain, because that will make Mexico a very valid equal trading partner to the United States. And if you want to have the North American continent and the Mexicans subjugated, it's much better to have Mexicans as third world cheap labor as having them as equal trading partners with the United States. That's where the Greenpeace comes in. And again, the uh, the name Greenpeace alone is almost as well known as Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, or any other corporation in corporate America. Yes, you do mention in your book about how uh, certain of the northern countries or the northern blocks, economic blocks, have used uh, countries in the south as their own sweatshops, basically. Well, if 
you go back in the history of the United States, uh, America has always been an independent nation, just as the Russians have always been independent. I mean, the only thing that the Russians didn't have is bananas and coffee. They, you know, they had everything else. Now, if you want to make a car, you get the body or the engine done in Detroit. You know, you get the body in Canada, and you get the wheels in Mexico. You have exactly the same policy, trade policies in Europe. Now, that's not the concept of free enterprise. It is done this way to make sure that no country can strike out on its own and be independent. It's about control. Again, independence is what a nation state is all about. And in that vein, you mentioned in your book that the biggest threat to this economic meltdown, these plans, etc., is organized resistance. Well, exactly. Uh, if we can only organize ourselves into some kind of a, a resistance movement, we can really stand up to these people. However, unfortunately, it's very difficult for people to understand how such a small group of people can control six and a half billion people of the planet. Again, uh, what people must understand is that the Bilderbergers don't need to control what each and all of us do or does or thinks. What they need to do is, you know, I'll give an example of a corporation. You take Coca-Cola or the New York Times. Through the president of the corporation, you control what everybody else does, the editorial line, how people think, what they write, their political position, etc. So through one man or one individual, you can control the rest of the organization. This is why it is so easy to control humanity, because the Bilderbergers, they just happen to occupy all the most important positions on the world stage. Danny, could you talk uh, briefly about the two other organizations that you focus on in your book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group? You have a whole section on the Council on Foreign Relations, and then uh, the third section on the Trilateral Commission. Now, the Council on Foreign Relations is a much larger group, and that's a domestic uh, American group. Isn't that right? That's right. The CFR is the American version of the Bilderbergers. There's about 3,000 members, more or less. And the Trilateral Commission, you have 325 members. That membership changes every, uh, every three years. So what I do in the book is I document how every presidential candidate, every position, not only the president of the United States, but also the official candidates for the opposition, as well as members of the independent party, they're all occupied by people who belong to the Council of Foreign Relations. The same thing as far as the CIA directors are concerned, you know, the secretaries of defense, the secretaries of the treasury, the appointees to the uh, United States Supreme Court. All of these people belong to the CFR. Now, if you actually think about it, you have a very powerful group of people whose foundations and whose base occupies all the leading positions in the United States. So when they're talking about, you know, a, a presidential appointment for this judge or that individual or somebody who is a member, or, you know, who is Secretary of Defense, just take it for granted that these people, before they can actually get to their positions, they have been approved by these men behind the curtain. Again, it's not a conspiracy. It's a fact. All of them belong. You know what I mean? It cannot be a coincidence. The human spirit requires that we look for a logical explanation, some model to explain why every presidential candidate over the last 50 years or 60 years has belonged to Bilderberg CFR, the Trilateral Commission, why every Secretary of the Treasury, the defense, people uh, who belong to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the judges, why all of these old boys and a few girls club will actually belong to the same interlocked Bilderberger CFR and Trilateral Commission compound. 
And then with regard to the Trilateral Commission, which was uh, started by whom? David Rockefeller in 1973? Now, that includes Asia as well, doesn't it? Trilaterals was started by David Rockefeller in 1973, but it was also started by, by Jimmy Carter and Big New Brzezinski. These are your, your, your three insiders. These are the three people who actually pulled the whole thing together. The Trilateral Commission is uh, your Americas, North and South America, it's Europe and it's also Asia, which gives them access to the entire world stage. And again, if you look at the list of some of the Trilateral Commission South American members, they're some of the biggest crooks and thieves and liars in the history of, uh, of the 20th century. You know, people who have destroyed uh, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, you know, Caballo, who destroyed Argentina. And again, all of these people, needless to say, again, they don't work for their country. They don't represent their government. They work for one of these three organizations, you know, your proverbial men behind the curtain. And again, there's a pattern here. The sapphires of this world don't report or represent America's interests. The Donald Grahams of this world don't represent their shareholders' interests. The governments in the United States or Spain or France, they don't represent their national interests. They all work for these secret cabals and conglomerates. And uh, I still fail to understand how a small group of people, 120, 130 of them, can have the same interests at heart as 6 billion very diverse cultures who make up this world we live in right now. Now, uh, what part, if any, did Jimmy Carter and Zbigniew Brzezinski play in the setting up of the Trilateral Commission in 1973? Uh, Rockefeller felt that Carter could project an image of a southern governor that could be used to fool many voters by appearing conservative or moderate while, in fact, favoring the most left-wing of agendas. The idea was to use Jimmy Carter to court both white and black voters who could be delivered by the Democratic Party's big urban political machine. However, what you know truly impressed them wasn't Carter's independence. Rather, what endeared Jimmy Carter to the establishment crowd was his ruthlessness and ambition. Uh, in this 1976 book called Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, Gary Allen writes that Carter's overwhelming ambition and corruptibility made him vulnerable. It included conniving him with his own personal banker, Bert Lance, to funnel banks' depositors' money into Carter's peanut business and into the bank accounts of Lance's associates and family members to finance Carter's campaign while waiting for federal matching funds. Now, the illegalities involved were enough to send the whole gang to jail, and the key to exposure was in the hands of David Rockefeller. And, of course, once you have that information, you have the men in your pocket. And needless to say, David Rockefeller and Jimmy Carter worked hand-in-hand throughout Carter's presidential campaign and then throughout his presidency. Now, why would anyone consider Jimmy Carter left-wing? Uh, because the media made us believe that he was left-wing. Again, it's the media, the corporate media, that makes us believe what we believe because the opinions we have are not our own. They've been very skillfully you know, inserted into our subconscious by the people who run the media and the men behind the curtain. Danny Estelin, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I've been speaking with Daniel Estulin. Today's show has been The Bilderberg Group, Rulers of the World. Daniel Estulin is an investigator, author, and public speaker. His book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, has just been published in the United States. 
In Spain, the book was on the top ten list for 36 straight weeks, 18 weeks as number one. It has been published in 28 languages in 48 countries. Daniel Estelin is also the author of *The Secrets of the Bilderberg Group* and *The Shadow Masters*, which explores the relationship between drugs, terrorism, the extreme right, and religious foundations. Daniel Estelin is a public speaker and teaches, and has written several books on public speaking. He has written many articles, mostly in Spanish, and writes his annual Bilderberg report. A Canadian citizen, he grew up in the Soviet Union, emigrated to Canada when he was 15, and currently lives in Spain. Visit his website at www.danielestulin.com. That's Daniel Estulin, E-S-T-U-L-I-N.com. The true story of the Bilderberg Group is available from the publisher at Trinday.com, from Barnes and Noble, and from Amazon.com. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call five one zero eight four eight six seven six seven extension six two eight. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter dot net, or visit our website at www dot gunsandbutter dot net. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what this side just said.